You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Barry Bloom. The Joan L. and Julius H. Jacobson Research Professor of Public Health and William Hanage, Associate Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, June 25th. Dr. Bloom, do you have any opening remarks? I would just to say that uh, as each of these calls, uh, the situation in the United States with COVID is getting uh, at a quite out of hand. In 27 states, the numbers are going up. If you look at Europe, uh, Australia, uh, many other countries, uh, the uh, epidemic has been brought to relatively low levels. And um, I guess in the first of these calls, what I found most interesting is that people don't just understand what um, exponential means. And it means if you have 7,000 cases today in Texas, you may have 14,000 cases in four days. Uh, so we're way behind the curve um, and it's gonna be very challenging. Thank you, Dr. Bloom. Uh, Dr. Hanisch, do you have any comments you'd like to make? Uh, yeah, good morning to all of you, especially those I've not spoken before. Hi, Barry, always a pleasure to be with you. Um, as Barry said, we're seeing increases in case numbers in many states outside the initial beachhead of the virus in the Northeast. Hospitals are approaching their capacity to be able to cope in Houston and Arizona and shortly, almost certainly elsewhere. And we can see that the states in the Northeast are urging visitors from other parts of the country, especially those badly affected by the virus, to self-quarantine. Meanwhile, the total numbers are increasing in the US and globally. And I would like to draw the, a comparison between now and a few months ago, because a few months ago, numbers were going up, mostly concentrated in a few states, whereas now they are much, much more widespread. And while that means that we are seeing, the increases that we are seeing um, right now have the capacity to produce far more disease in the future. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Hanage. Um, first question. Yes, thank you so much for doing this, as always. Um, can one of the experts talk about what can be done at this point to get, get control of these outbreaks, particularly in, in Texas, Florida, and Arizona? Um, are we thinking about stay-at-home orders again, mask mandates? Um, closing some businesses like restaurants and bars, or is it, are we past the point where these kinds of actions would be helpful? No, why don't you start? Sure, I will. Um, thanks for the question. The, um, the situation in these states has been allowed to build such that we now have uh, significant community transmission, which is increasing. And the only way that we have of stopping that at the moment are the sort of non-pharmaceutical interventions which you have outlined. Now, over the last few weeks, as cases have been increasing, there has been a continued push to reopen or to you know, continue providing, uh, continue reopening for the sake of the economy. However, doing that also provides opportunities for the virus to transmit. The only thing that we can do in order to put a lid on this is to prevent the virus transmitting. Now, the only way we can do that is through some of the interventions we're talking about. At minimum, I think that mask use is sensible in places, especially in places which have not yet seen a large quantity of disease. Now, in those places which are seeing a large quantity of disease, in places where there's risk of the, uh, of the healthcare system being overwhelmed, then we need to take more intense interventions of the sorts which were eventually forced upon us in the Northeast. So I would, it depends a little bit on exactly what is happening where you are, what I would recommend, but I would just urge people to remember, if you put in milder interventions earlier on so that you do not build up this big powder keg of infections underneath you, which are then eventually going to start flowing into the ICUs, that's a better outcome than allowing a large outbreak which requires a shutdown. Uh, Dr. Bloom, do you have any comments you'd like to make? No, I think there'll be lots of questions, so I think they'll answer it well. Okay, great. Uh, next question. Hi, uh, yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm wondering uh, wh what you think about the, what the research is saying so far in terms of crowd gatherings outside versus crowd gatherings inside. Um, 
you know, is there any evidence that, say, you know, large gatherings outside of the protests have been causing any of these uh, spikes, or has it been mostly um, uh, emanating from indoor transmission? And then I, I have a follow-up question, too. I'll start and would like to ask Bill to continue. Um, um, it's probably too early or just beginning to be too early to ask the question to what extent the um, protests, the Black Lives Matter protests um, in 30, 315 cities and towns in the states have had an impact on transmission. The good news is that they were outdoors and hopefully aerosols will disperse. Uh, most of the people that have been in those by and large have been young, healthy people. And the expectation is that the impact of all of that might be less than you might expect. The problem there is whether they catch it in those circumstances and remain asymptomatic uh, and don't get ill. The question is when they bring it home to their parents or their grandparents, whether they serve as sources of spread. And we won't know that for some time. The, uh, we'll know that best actually when we look at whether hospitalization numbers go up. Bill, comment? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that you're right. I, I agree uh, with Barry. The, um, while there are, is currently not any evidence of um, spikes of infection which can be linked to the protests. That does not mean that asymptomatic transmission cannot have happened, which we will only be able to detect once it starts showing itself as hospitalizations. Um, I will note, however, that the um, some of the thinking about the protests could ignore other things that might happen as a consequence of them. While you have people gathering outdoors, it's true, the transmission rate is much lower outdoors than it is indoors. It's not nil, but it is much lower. Um, there could be subsequent tendencies of people in those, uh, in those people who are not involved in the protests to stay at home. And so you might actually see a total net decrease in contacts. We also need to think very carefully about the proportion of contacts which are made at a protest outside in comparison with the total number of contacts which are made in indoor settings across places which are reopening, because we know the transmission is much more likely indoors. So the sort of science which happens behind closing down large gatherings, and we'll think of the protests as a large gathering, is such that there's no point in stopping large gatherings if you're still having everything else open. Because the fact is that, you know, if you shut down the baseball game, people will go to a bar and watch it and make the same number of contacts there. However, if you do both of them, if you shut down both the bar and the baseball game in the sense of a shutdown, then it can have an important effect. So in the same way, as states are reopening, the total opportunities for transmission which are being offered by that are larger, probably, than the total number of opportunities which are given for transmission by the protests. And so it, we need to think about the net impact in those two, of those two different process, pro, protests, processes. Did you have any follow-up questions? Please yes, do. I just had one follow-up. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering what you think of the recent French uh, research about there may be uh, less likelihood of transmission uh, amongst uh, school children to parents or, or other children. It, it, are you optimistic about that or pessimistic about that research? I'll grab this and then see if Barry has something to say. The, um, yeah, that's, that's interesting because the, there is conflicting, there has been conflicting evidence on the role of children in transmission. It seems almost certainly that young children, and I want to emphasize here, I'm talking about like an elementary, maybe some of the younger junior high years, younger children are less likely to become infected. And the figure which I keep coming across is about 50% of the risk of adults, although that is biased probably by the sort of designs we've been able to do so far. That's why this French study is interesting. And they're also less likely to transmit, although to it's not as impressive a degree. You can compare it with a preprint which came out of Israel, which showed again, children are roughly 50% as likely to acquire the infection 
and maybe a little less, they did not find a significant difference to transmit it. Now, taken all together, what that means is that transmission in schools is likely lower than might be expected if children were like adults. That doesn't mean, however, that schools can necessarily reopen because the contacts that children might make in schools would be very different to those that they'd be making elsewhere. And so you don't want the school to become a net contributor. I will then add that this is not the case for adolescents and high schoolers, because adolescents and high schoolers seem to be much more likely to become infected and transmit. They're, like, they're much closer to the adult situation. And in fact, repeated studies from many different places have shown large rates, relatively high rates of seropositivity in this group. As a result, I think that there is some reason for cautious optimism there, but it's not necessarily a reason to throw the schools open. And I'm, I will probably be asked more about schools later because I do have a little more to say on the subject, but I'll shut up now and give Barry an opportunity to speak. I, I agree totally. And I think that the data on young school age children is not very clear, um, but not a reason not to start schools, preferably in places and states and districts that have a relative control of the epidemic. Um, but I think when it gets to uh, high school, for example, they do behave as adults. And in um, uh, Korea or Japan, they allowed school children back earlier than high schools. And um, that seemed not to contribute significantly to the epidemics, which they then controlled very well. Yeah, I can add, I was gonna add one further comment to that. If you look at Israel's recent numbers of increasing cases, once again, they seem to have been tied back to schools and in particular high schools. So that's another, that's another relevant data point. Great, thank you very much. Okay, next question. Good morning, thank you all for doing this again. My question is about the, the rolling two week average and what it means. You know, here in Florida today, it's 10%. So, you know, if you have 10 people in a room, does that mean one of those people is, is going to have it? Is it really as simple as that? So the rolling two week average, where, where are you thinking about in particular? You think about the rolling um, two week average of proportion of tests or the yes. rolling? Okay. Um, it's, you cannot take it as simply as that because it depends a great deal on the number of tests that are being done and where they're being focused. Now, in, if, if it were the situation that everybody was being, everybody in the community was regularly being tested, then yes, it would mean that, but that's not happening anywhere. Instead, tests are being concentrated um, either on people who um, we believe may be infected or we, either because they have symptoms or because they've been named as a contact. And then in some places, people are sort of showing up to be tested just because they are concerned for themselves. But in nowhere, nowhere are we doing the kind of population level surveillance which would make the interpretation that you've um, laid out a reasonable one. So the way to think about those tests, that statistic is particularly useful as a way of measuring how much the testing that's being done is capturing the state of the underlying pandemic. Thank you. Um, to follow up on testing, the Miami Herald reported this morning, and I see that the two journalists are actually in on this call too, so thank you for that. Um, they said that Florida is 29 out of the 50 states in testing. Does that mean that we need more testing to bring the percentage down? You know, would more testing become a more accurate representation? If the last few days have showed us anything, it's that on the days when we have more testing, the percentage is lower. Um, testing is not the intervention that will interrupt transmission. And I think that's the common focus. The intervention is the isolation of people who test positive to prevent transmission to other people. So um, focusing on testing without linking that to isolation and contact tracing uh, would be simply scorekeeping in the middle of an epidemic. Bill? Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. That's um, testing links to, um, testing is relevant when it is linked to an action. Because if you don't do that, you are really just keeping score. You're just being like a stenographer, counting um, up numbers. So it's not only a question about doing testing, it's about using that information to make some kind of information. 
Thank you. And then uh, the one one more question. Um, this morning, the Washington Post had an article that said Florida will bury more people in July because of the lag. Is that something that you agree with? Well, it depends more people than when, um, or more people than in more people than it would have expected to bury in July. Absolutely, I'd agree with that. It will bury more people in July than it would in an ordinary year if there was not a pandemic. And a failure to take interventions capable of stemming the pandemic has led to it. I would, uh, I think that's an important question. Um, and I think Bill's answer is correct. <clears throat> um, a number of governors have commented that while the testing numbers go up, hospitalizations have not gone up in parallel. And the reason is probably that it takes time to get sick enough to end up in an ICU. And uh, uh, we haven't seen all the new testing positivity percentages that are going to need to be hospitalized. So the lag will come after the tests go up to hospitalization. No, no. And many of the hospitals in those states are at 90, 89 to 93% capacity. It's going to be very bad. Thank you both so much. Great. Uh, next question. She would like me to read it out. Given the risks, risk associated with certain conditions, including obesity, hypertension, and diabetes, what value is there with the goal of possibly reducing severe symptoms of COVID-19, of getting hypertension and diabetes under control, and having people lose even a small amount of weight? Um, is that from a, a medical point of view is if you already have hypertension um, and diabetes, independent of COVID, you should try uh, to control those. And um, as you do, you will almost certainly, to some extent, um, reduce the risks uh, associated with an, uh, super infection with, um, with COVID-19. Uh, on the issue of losing weight, I think it's hard for people to lose weight. And I'm not sure that COVID is the reason to try to do that. Um, and the impact of that is not going to be immediate in any case. Whereas reducing hypertension, controlling diabetes are things that can uh, get rather quick and safe results. Okay, thank you. Next question. Great, thank you for taking my question. Um, so my question is related to something that was mentioned a little bit earlier, um, and it's the idea of you know why is the mortality rate nationally still uh, declining while we have these surges? Uh, the president has pointed to this, um, and do you think that's just a lag, or is there something to the idea that we may be testing more younger people or uh, more healthy people, and that we may not see as many um, deaths in the future? Um, because of that? Just your thoughts on how to interpret the trends as we see them now? Um, uh, I'll take this, I'll start with this. So one of the things which is interesting, which is true, and incidentally, I think it reflects that a situation which does offer a drama comfort is that the testing across the Sun Belt has generally been finding infections in younger people. This suggests good testing, better testing. It suggests that people are being tested who are not um, displaying very severe symptoms, which are such that they might require hospitalization already. That's, that's good. However, when we're looking at the total numbers of deaths, you would expect that to only be limited if you have relatively small outbreaks, which are confined to sectors of the population which are not likely to become severely ill. Now, nowhere has been able to thoroughly insulate the part of the population which is at risk. And the higher the rates of community transmission you see in any age group, the higher the risk for those who are actually vulnerable to the most severe consequences of the infection. So what this likely means uh, is that the outbreak across the South is being recognized at a somewhat earlier stage than the outbreak in the Northeast was. And that's a good thing because it means that if there's any window of opportunity for action, it's like right now, and you can, things you do now will have great consequences. However, if you do not take action now, then the, 
community transmission is going to continue to build and then sooner or later it is going to get into those at risk and they are going to be starting to have in, in time as we've been saying there's deaths and hospitalizations are a lagging indicator in time those people will start to go to hospital and they will start to die it may not be immediate it may be a couple of weeks it may be a little bit longer but it will happen and remember it's happening in a far larger total population than the outbreaks in the spring were next question um, hi, uh, thanks for doing this. Um, I just wanted to ask about kind of the White House's role in this um, and the federal government. I mean, what, it seems like there's pretty broad consensus they're not doing enough. I mean, do you agree with that? And, you know, if you were suddenly, you know, made like the federal government's czar for this, I mean, what would, you, what would your actions be that you think the federal government um, should be doing or the president should be saying um, or doing? I think Barry should start on this one. I'm happy to take that. I've given a lot of uh, thought to that and I'm, I'm really quite appalled at the way the United States has responded. <clears throat> um, at the best, the way journalists put this in the press is that there have been conflicting signals from Washington. Uh, I don't think they've been awfully conflicting. I think the president doesn't believe that you need to wear a mask. And I think as the leader and the symbol of governance in this country, if he doesn't need to wear a mask, why should I wear a mask and be inconvenienced? Um, that's a very clear signal um, that I think is um, very difficult for people down in the public health system to persuade people, ignore your president and do what I tell you. Uh, so I think that's a problem. The second problem is the government has basically, with rare exceptions, absented themselves from taking control of what should be done and turfing it back to states. So we do have a CDC. There are competent people at CDC. Um, Probably they could link a set of recommendations which they have now finally put out with some censorship, I have to say, of how it could best be done in the states. But to have public health officers in all 50 states come up on their own uh, to develop the kind of knowledge that's been accumulated in past epidemics and pandemics and figure out how to do the supply chains, the distribution of PPEs. What do we have a government for if not to be able to pull the country together with a common set of precautions and policies that every state could um, uh, implement uh, that were uh, reasonable? So that I think the government is not home in this epidemic. And that has made things worse. Yep. I, I agree with all of that. I would add to it that following a period a few months ago when attention was paid to the pandemic, the government now appears to be um, taking a somewhat ostrich-like attitude to the pandemic, sticking its head in the sand and hoping it'll go away, pushing the responsibilities onto the states. And this is not necessarily what had to happen. A couple of months ago, there was reporting from Politico on the existence of the 2016 Obama administration pandemic playbook. And if you look through that, it includes very specific things such as, is the amount of PPE that is available sufficient to cope with a surge? If yes, do this. If no, do that. And, you know, it is, for the most part, good guidance. These things are there, and that's what a government could do. Because otherwise, you just end up in a situation where you've got all the states on their own, and, you know, we're only going to be as strong as the weakest link. Do you have a follow-up question? Um, do, you, do you, no, thanks, that makes sense. Do you feel like, um, I mean, has the testing and PPE and, you know, the, the stuff that the federal government should be doing, seems like maybe that's gotten a little better. I mean, is that right? Or, I mean, or is there still just a long way to, to go on that and they need to be, you know, doing more to ramp up supplies and that kind of thing? Well, as you know, the government has like been cutting funding to 13 testing centers. So, I mean, I don't think that it can cover itself in glory there. And I think that we can be, one thing that we can be sure of is that there is going to be more infection happening elsewhere. And, you know, we, we are seeing what 
Barry said at the start about you know an exponential. And so even if there is PPE availability now, then we have to be prepared for it to be requiring a lot more of it. You know, I say this on my Twitter bio, you know, don't panic, do prepare. And that's something which I think you can still learn from. Mm -hmm. Thanks, that's, that's good with me. Next question. Hi, um, thank you. Um, I was hoping to follow up on an earlier question um, and just ask a little bit, sorry, there's an ambulance going by my house. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was hoping you could be a little bit more specific in terms of what measures you think could be implemented now. Um, uh, you, you said sort of at a minimum is to stop with phases of reopening and sort of assuming um, there's not the political or public will for like a complete return to what happened in March and April. Like what, what could be done? Like for example, Greg Abbott today, the governor of Texas, um, stopped elective procedures again at hospitals in the in the counties experiencing spread. So like what are other sort of tangible steps that governors in those uh, states could do to sort of slow the, the snowballing that's happening? I mean, it, it varies from place to place and state to state, depending on the state of the epidemic. But for example, um, when bars are open, it sounds silly, and I have not frequented bars often, but there is no distancing available in most bars that I've ever seen. And if you again um, look at outbreaks in Korea, a single person went, uh, came into the country and went in one night to five bars and started an outbreak that got uh, infecting um, uh, hundreds of people one night, one person in multiple bars. So I would say um, if they want to keep some things open, um, look at places as we have now in Massachusetts where stores are open, food markets are open, but they mark um, uh, two meter or six feet uh, spots on the floor. They allow only certain numbers of people in. In Texas, when they have opened up, it's my understanding that they have restaurants that are allowed to be 75% of normal capacity. 75% uh, is awfully close to 100% from my point of view, unless they've organized the geometry so that the tables are really that far apart. Um, it's unclear that that 25% is actually going to do what you want it to do, which is to restrict transmission. So my fear is they will let things get really bad, which is um, what the bending of the curve was supposed to prevent, which is uh, rendering the hospitals overrun so that people can't get uh, uh, serious medical attention. And at that point, they're going to have to shut down as we were back in uh, April. And that's going to be politically extremely difficult and economically extremely difficult to take. I fully agree. Um, I just to add a perhaps a I don't think it's a I think it's basically what Barry was saying. But you want to avoid shutdowns. Shutdowns are what become necessary when you have a large body of infection in the community. Because when when you actually stop new infections, if you stop all new infections right now, the worst cases will be rolling into your ICUs in two or three weeks. So you're not going to be actually even if you manage to be perfect preventing all new transmission chains starting up, you would still be looking at an increasing number of problems. And so if it's, that's, if you've got a very severe crisis upon you, you have to take much stronger steps than if you are at an earlier stage in your epidemic curve. If you're at an earlier stage in your epidemic curve, then what you should be doing is, you know, I, I would say a minimum of masks, a minimum of preventing transmission within the high density type of establishments like Barry was just talking about. I would encourage um, business owners to be moving towards curbside pickup if possible. Everybody should be starting to practice social distancing and you should be prepared to take those things up if you put those things into, uh, into place and you still see increases in disease. Got it. Thanks very much. Next question. Thanks so much. Thanks for making the time. Um, so, you know, here in Miami-Dade, we, we've uh, been taking this approach recently given our, our surge in cases uh, uh, the mayor here Carlos Jimenez uh, is calling a tough love enforcement approach so 
similar to this discussion of non-pharmaceutical interventions, we're talking here about more enforcement of these non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as mask, uh, face masks, but not actually shutting down establishments. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on these kind of middle ground measures where you're not shutting down restaurants, but you're uh, all together, but you are shutting them down if you see reports of people not social distancing or wearing masks inside. Um, can, can someone walk that tightrope or do you think that that's kind of a fighting a losing battle? I'll turn that to, to Bill. I, I just think it's very hard to know uh, what a middle ground means in the middle of an epidemic that is uh, doubling every couple of days. Um, masks do help, but what does enforcement mean? For example, um, New York is now restricting people who come in from eight states that have uh, increasing uh, 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 incidences of COVID to stay at home for two weeks, and they're putting financial fines on those who don't abide that. And the question is, is that really enforceable? And I guess my sense that goes back to the earlier question of leadership, it is not the public health system and it's not the government that is going to control this epidemic. It's the behavior of the people in the cities and towns of this country that will either be sensible and, and um, uh, stay at home to the extent possible um, avoid circumstances where they can get infected, wear masks, avoid crowds. If they don't do that, cutting uh, a middle ground where people don't change their behavior is probably not tenable. And it means that the only thing that would possibly work is to cut back. Um, if people don't do it voluntarily, then I think you have to start closing things so they don't have the option of transmitting and being transmitted to. Um, I, would, I would add to that, you know, you ask, um, is it possible to find a middle ground? Well, we're gonna find out, aren't we? Um, I, um, my, as I said previously, if you're gonna be looking for middle ground, you want to be doing it at a point when you don't already have a large amount of disease in your community. So, you know, I would, I would be urging people to be starting to practice physical distancing even where there is no community transmission right now. You know, a lot of small things you can be doing for a mask, not shaking hands, cough very little, um, and then just preparing for the fact that as disease um, activity ramps up, you're going to have to be doing more. I think one thing which is often missed um, is that when we're speaking about reopening and so on, there is a we are tending to think about the importance of reopening everything, when actually I personally think it would be a better thing to do to prioritize the things that we think are really important. And then, you know, if keeping, say, a school open is not possible without making some contribution to community transmission, well, maybe somewhere else is going to have to be placed under greater restrictions in order to accommodate that. You need to think more intelligently about these things. And a middle ground is, I think, only really possible in places which don't have a lot of disease yet. One quick follow-up question. Thank you. Uh, I'm just catching up to your uh, last comment here. Um, so, but just one other thing, you know, an another development that was announced yesterday here in Miami-Dade is doing something that the state discussed for a while and never ended up doing, which is to provide housing for people who test positive or identified, uh, you know, either self-reported or via contact tracing and have nowhere to go where that, because, you know, what we're hearing from our, our local officials is that a lot of the surge, at least in Miami Dade, is coming from lower income areas where people don't have the option to stop working. They catch the disease uh, while they're out uh, doing their job and they bring it home and they infect everyone in the household. So they're trying to figure out a way to, to isolate people who don't have anywhere else to go. Um, and this is something that the state wants discussed but is no longer doing. Is that an intervention that you would like to see more of, um, this providing housing to people? Bill would have, I'm sure, lots to say. Um, that was a key part of what brought um, the epidemic under control in China, Korea, and Japan, is they provided um, uh, temporary housing for people who tested positive um, to isolate them 
which is the key intervention, from transmitting to their households. And if you look at the building construction in uh, Korea and Japan and China, they're giant buildings. So once you have transmission on a floor of a building and in elevators, it's harder to control. But having those people in separate facilities for two weeks seemed to have a very positive effect. Bill? Yeah, I completely and utterly agree. Um, and I think your examples are, the examples you draw are good ones. Um, I don't add to it that Singapore, which has had such a great early pandemic, um, experienced a own large outbreak, again, among migrant workers who were um, were living in dormitories in which it was very difficult to enact social distancing. So yes, I think this is a good thing. What Miami's doing. Just one last thing. I think y'all will make it quick. Um, <laughs> we, as you know, we've had a lot of news here the last few days. One other thing that I've asked the DOH here in Florida, um, why they're not tracking current hospitalizations. I've seen a lot of uh, public health experts and epidemiologists on Twitter saying that they're puzzled by why Florida has never tracked this in real time. Miami-Dade County, we have tracked it in real time, but Florida as a state only reports cumulative hospitalization and bed capacity. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, we've seen a lot of an alarm over what we're seeing in the hospitalizations in places like Arizona and Texas. Um, and, you know, all we hear about here in Florida is bed capacity. Um, so I'm just wondering if you all have thoughts on how valuable that metric is and, you know, whether it is a best practice to track current hospitalizations. Well, I would say that current hospitalizations are more valuable, first of all. And I would urge um, I would love to urge consistency of data gathering and reporting um, across states, but I realize that it's likely a losing battle. I would just say my big worry for Florida is um, to be prepared for hurricanes. We're in hurricane season, where in very short order, vast numbers of people have to be evacuated. And it is uh, not clear to me that Florida has taken um, care to plan for facilities. Gymnasiums uh, are often used in hurricanes to house people temporarily. That's not a great idea in terms of transmission of um, uh, COVID auditoriums and, and churches. Uh, I think Florida has to worry about a double hit if uh, there are hurricanes during this season. Super smart point. Okay, next question. Hi, thanks so much. Um, I wonder if you could expand on the evidence um, on whether the outbreak is actually hitting, uh, hitting uh, younger people than in the spring. And separately, uh, during the call, the, the Texas governor actually announced a pause in the reopening, and I wonder if you could react to that. Um, I'll start on this quickly. Um, I don't think it's hitting younger children. Younger children. I don't think it's hitting younger people than it did in the spring. I think we're just noticing it more. If you look at the age distributions of people who were in places badly affected in the spring, we find that the you know the peak age, which is likely to show evidence of infection, are the younger age groups around the sort of 20 to 30, and um, maybe a little bit older than that. And that's consistent across many different settings. So I think that what's happening now is that we're seeing that in real time rather than picking it up later. Um, and I don't think it's a big change in the pandemic. I think it just means that we might be catching it or getting a better idea of what's going on with it in an earlier stage. Um, I don't, I'm not up to date with everything that Governor Abbott has been doing. However, I would say that if there's a pause in the reopening, then that's an extremely good thing. Take that, you know, pause, look carefully, take tough decisions if you need to take tough decisions and then regroup. Uh, Barry, did you have a comment? No, pause is middle ground. They have already opened a lot of things where transmission is now occurring. Um, it may be they're going to have to close some of the things that they've always opened. And you can tell from the political point of view, that's an unpleasant choice for any governor. Do you have a follow-up? That was old. Thank you. Next question. Uh, in, in Arizona and Florida, I, I think some of what's been noteworthy is not just the case increase, but the, the share of tests coming back positive. I wondered if I've got that right, um, 
I wondered if there's a way to talk about the nation in terms of positivity rates and what the nation is looking like now versus uh, in April. I'll start with that. Um, I don't think we can talk about it nationally because there's too much variation because, you know, different places test in different ways. And as I said, nowhere is doing sort of surveillance studies to just try and capture the true fraction of the population that is actually infected at any one time. And making it worse, there are some states, and I believe Arizona is among them, where it is not clear whether or not a test is from a person or a specimen. So if a person turns up and tests positive, then that's a test, a positive test. If you test them again a few days later, well, that's another positive test potentially, but it's not a new infection. It's, you know, so you have to actually be counting the number of infections as well as the number of tests. Because if you're using your tests for those kind of purposes, it can muddy with the data. And we have seen, as you know, we have seen so many numerous, unclear, less than transparent testing practices um, across the nation, and I can only urge places to make them more transparent. Thanks. A, a quick follow-up. I think one of you mentioned at the outset that um, there's better control in Europe right now. If I, if I heard that right, what, what's happening in Europe that's different in the U.S.? One of the things that's happened is that countries have had national policies where every city and town have to reinvent the principles that were going to happen there. Um, and so once they recommended things to be locked down, uh, they were locked down. And once they were open, they were stages that were uh, countrywide. But countries in Europe are, some of them are a lot smaller than a single state here. I think it has not been helpful um, that there hasn't been a general policy of, for example, uh, opening search, uh, uh, social events depending on what the number of uh, contact tracing capacity is. If the intervention is to identify positives and isolate them, um, when you have 7,000 cases a day, uh, you're not able to be able to trace people who become positive that day and isolate them. So that's the criterion that really is required to get the numbers really down. And that's what the lockdowns have done. They kept people from uh, mixing. And when you stop mixing, you stop transmission after a couple of weeks. Uh, so um, the genie's out of the, out of the bottle here. And uh, in Europe, for the most part, England was uh, behind. Um, they kept the uh, cautions in place and social distancing in place until they got to the point where they can now identify most cases and isolate them. And all of them still have the capacity, as do China and um, Korea and Japan, to have introduced cases from outside that slip in and start transmission again. And uh, China has just had, as you know, a significant outbreak. That's going to be the ideal case coming forward for the next year. Small outbreaks, identifying cases, isolating them, stopping uh, uh, transmission, uh, chains of transmission locally. Um, but we've got to get the numbers down where you can do that. And when there's 7,000 a day, that's not possible. Indeed. And when you have 7,000 a day, just think about it, you've got to track, say, 10 contacts of those 7,000. And then once you find the positives in them, you've got to track the 10 contacts of those. It's exponentially increasing. I think the issue, the only thing I'd add to that is that the European Centers for Disease Control, the ECDC, um, seem to phrase the reopening in, a context, in the context of refining shutdowns as opposed to just sort of reopening. So the idea is you refine it in order to try and figure out the things which are most effective, which actually speaks to some of the other questions on this call. Um, that's, in my view, a better way of doing things um, with good contact tracing and stuff to keep the lid on the, out, on the pandemic than to simply have a the kind of um, rapid un, um, the kind of rapid openings that we have seen, especially across the south of the country, without good, without the testing which is capable to keep track of a large outbreak or, 
or do good contact tracing. May I just one point that I find um, of concern that hasn't been much made of. Uh, there have been recent reports, for example, in New York, that in the contact tracing that is calling people to tell them they have been in contact with a corona positive individual, um, two things are happening. One is people are not taking the phone calls. So they're not being notified that they were in contact. And some that have been have decided not to spend two weeks in isolation and have ignored um, the phone call that they might be infected and able to transmit. I don't think that happens as much in other countries, certainly not in Asia, when they are called and uh, told to isolate um, and they're checked on often, uh, they isolate. Here, if everything is voluntary, there will be a fair amount of non-compliance, in which case contact tracing and isolation is not gonna work. That's why I think the outcome is dependent on the behavior of the people more than it does on the public health system or the state government. If people are ignoring the epidemic, it's going to be very hard to control. And leadership should inspire people uh, to be more cautious. Gotcha. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I, it seemed like a couple weeks ago when everybody was starting to reopen their economy, there was this idea that as people uh, moved about, there would be some sickness, an increase in infections and an increase in death, and that's the price you pay for uh, you know, the economy getting back going. Um, I'm curious what you think may have changed that all of a sudden we are seeing uh, more people worried, governors pausing their reopenings, et cetera. What, did, did we overestimate our own capacity to tolerate infection and death? I'll let Bill answer the question, but I would say that uh, what I find striking, it goes back to what the idea of people understanding of exponential expansion of an epidemic. Uh, if you only look at what you see today, you're three weeks behind the curve. So what you see today is not really what's out there and happening in the community. And it's only when, if people don't understand that what you see today is gonna to get much worse tomorrow. Uh, people, when the political leaders wait till it gets really bad, that's where we are now. Um, that's not what happened in uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, and other countries that have controlled things. On the other hand, Italy has showed things can get really bad, but if you clamp down and lock down and really control movement, um, they were able to get that down to a remarkably low level, comparable to other countries in Europe. But it's trying to imagine what will be three weeks from now, rather than what you see today that should be determining policy, and we're not good at that. Um. I agree. I would um, I would say that, however, rather than overestimating our abilities, we underestimated the virus ability. Well, we didn't underestimate it. Epidemiologists could see the situation, but I think that we as a people have underestimated the virus's capabilities. We, the reopening um, reflects some things which I think are entirely reasonable. And I want to point out very again, as loudly as I can, I do not like shutdowns. I, I think shutdowns are a bad thing, but if they're the only thing that you have at your disposal to prevent an even worse catastrophe, then there's something which you may have to use. Now, people, for reasons that I do not fully understand, because I can't sit in the minds of, um, of my fellow human beings, seem to think that the amounts of reopening that we were uh, seeing would be compatible with a kind of background rate of disease that would be tolerable, as you say. However, if you offer the virus sufficient opportunities to transmit, and that is what reopening does, duh, then it will take them. And we will start to see things increasing and we will see an exponential of the kind that um, Barry just described. Now, the question then becomes, that is, and this is absolutely true, that the quantity of 
that we can have a level of background transmission which will lead to a background background drumbeat of hospitalizations and deaths which could be considered tolerable and i think that that is actual policy in some places however that is only possible if you are continuing to keep the reproductive number somewhere around one and even if it gets anywhere above one then you're going to have to put something in place in order to stop it um, going up and producing an exponential like Barry says. I think a way to think about it that might be useful is that if the reproductive number is two, that means on average one person infects two others. Now think about the number of contacts that you make in a day, a number of, the numbers of close contacts on which you might be able to transmit. If you just get rid of one of them, if you just get rid of half of your contacts, then you are bringing your personal reproductive number to, you know, to one rather than to two. And that's the kind of intervention that we need to be thinking about. But sadly, I don't think enough, you know, I wish more people listened to epidemiologists. Um, with that said, uh, the, the president, I think, just tweeted while we were on the call that we have the lowest death rate in the country. And it's something we've talked about before about not seeing three weeks ahead. Um, are you worried, because uh, I've heard governors talk about this too. In Tennessee, the governor said the most important data is the death rate. Are you worried that the death rate is now being used as justification to continue reopening the economy? I think that if you're going to do that with the death rate, you should be prepared to look at the death rate in a month or so and be, um, be following, you know, hold on to that statistic if you're going to follow it, because you might not find it so attractive in a couple of weeks. You all set? Yes, thank you. Okay, next question. Uh, Dr. Hanage, at the outset, you said you had plenty to say about schools, so uh, here's your chance. Um, there's, there's a little bit of a debate brewing uh, over whether we should be asking how to open schools safely versus asking how do we control community transmission so that schools can reopen. Yes. Does that make sense to you? And, and I'd love to hear makes, your thoughts on that, that and, and anything you want to say about schools. That makes absolute sense. Are you, um, I don't know if you were referring to some comments that were made on Twitter yesterday. Uh, yes, of course. If you were, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly biased about the person who authored that because that's my wife, who's just over there. But um, I think that her thoughts are extremely <laughs> helpful. Um, but the, I think the points to, to take um, what she would say and to emphasize with a framework which I'm finding useful. I think you need to separate, but you need to think about this in terms of three sort of risks. The first risk is to children themselves. What's the risk of transmission among them? Then you have to think about the risk of children in schools then transmitting to caregivers, whether it be teachers or family members. You know, some kids will live in multi-generational households, for instance. And then finally, there is the risk to the community. What happens when a school becomes a net contributor to the community as a result of so many things come into it that it's just actually acting as a sort of um, to amplify the virus and send it back out. Now as regards to the risk to children, no age group has zero risk of infection, but children are much less likely to have really severe outcomes. For the small fraction who do have a severe outcome, well Again, you might not want them to be exposed when community transmission is high. So this means we want to stop community transmission. For the group in the middle, again, their risk is going to be highest in terms of getting disease from the school and getting disease from the community if community transmission is high. And then in terms of the school becoming a net contributor, well, that's more likely to happen if you have more introductions. And also, if you have, like, you know, Barry said very wisely earlier, these testing criteria, which are going to be like, you know, you test and then you do something. You need to figure out what you're going to do with a positive test result before you run the test. Um, if you do that and you're sort of saying, well, if we have more than a certain number of tests to come back positive, we are going to shut the school down or we're going to do that. Well, again, that's going to happen from the community transmission. So I think instead of looking at, instead of asking the question of whether or not you want to open schools, I think the way to note is that, like Barry said at the start, in places where community transmission is low, opening elementary schools for younger children would not add a huge amount to it. I mean, I still think that you should monitor very carefully, think about community transmission, but that's, and that's the situation where you should be most able to open schools. However, 
if we allow community transmission to get higher, then that could impede our ability to open schools, which is, and schools are surely one of the most important things that we should be looking at within our society. I mean, they not only educate children, they feed them. They, for some children, they are a safer place than home. And as a result, we ought to look at a school and say, what is the contribution a school is making? We should be wanting to be able to open schools and schools should have a higher priority arguably than some other parts of the economy. Now, what those are, I think that needs to be debated. But I would note that, you know, if you're having an argument about whether or not you should be opening casinos, then, you know, I'd far rather see a school open um, than necessarily a casino. I note that there are gonna be economic impacts of the casinos as well, but I think that what we should be thinking about in reopening is not reopening everything in a safe way, but which things we want to reopen and being able to do that without enhancing community transmission. Sorry, that went on a bit long. No, 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 keep going if you want, but thank you, that answers my question. Are you all set? Uh, yes, oh, thanks. I'm sorry, Dr. Boom has something you'd like to say. I, I would just say, I, I think that uh, um, Zika Manuel has made a really important case for what Bill just said. Sco schools are absolutely critical for the development, socialization, and education of children. Schools also free up parents to go back to work. Um, uh, so they're enormously important. And in terms of the priorities, I would put an enormous amount on reducing things like bars, casinos, church worship services and stuff by limiting transmission in the communities to enable as a priority schools to get high priority for opening and we're not doing. Thank you for the additional perspective. Okay, are you all set? Yes. Uh, next question. Hello, hi, thank you for taking my, uh, my uh, late uh, question. So uh, yeah, I'd like to change the topic uh, going to um, the issue of, uh, of vaccine. So I guess uh, the, the more uh, the, the I mean, situation in the U.S. is going uh, hot with the new wave of contagion and the economic uh, uh, breakdown, then uh, the higher will be the price of vaccine, if it ever is, uh, is, uh, is going to be developed. So actually, the more I talk to, uh, to research labs, independent uh, research centers, uh, the more I find out that uh, back, uh, I think, uh, five or six years ago, Many of them, they, they already uh, tested um, in vitro and on animal uh, uh, SARS vaccine. And uh, those vaccines, actually, they, they managed to, uh, to target uh, uh, the common parts of, of um, coronaviruses in general. And uh, they didn't get enough funding from BARDA to scale up their project and to go to phase one and phase two of their vaccine uh, ahead of the pandemic. And now, uh, in the middle of, uh, of this uh, health crisis, they Actually, they, they, uh, they tested their SARS vaccine on the new uh, SARS-CoV-2, and actually it worked. Uh, but they are not there is not a lot of media coverage about this stuff. And uh, I also learned in, uh, that uh, a small research lab that was taken over by Sanofi in 2016, uh, they also developed this SARS vaccine, and Sanofi shut down the platform for that. And now Sanofi uh, is, uh, is again uh, put the platform in place after getting money from BARDA, from the US government. So I'm really wondering what are your, what's your opinion on this uh, industry-driven, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, preventive uh, health uh, uh, system, which, which uh, I mean, could have saved money, maybe lives, if those vaccines uh, were, I mean, developed at least to the phase two, and they could have upgraded into something stronger now. Uh, yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, to me, it, it, it sounds a bit uh, kind of a Kafkaian, so the vaccine situation, which I know a bit about, is uh, a, a complex one. So to start with platforms, the quickest vaccines that are now becoming available for testing uh, did not exist three years ago or four years ago. So we have no experience with A, how effective they will be and how safe they will be. Uh, the second thing is vaccines are made um, not by academics and research labs uh, and even biotechs. They're uh, created 
but this is high scale uh, industrial company stuff. And one of the limiting factors is who can make a billion doses. There's 7.6 billion people on the planet. In principle, you'd have to vaccinate about 6 billion to assure the uh, herd immunity for the whole world. Nobody expects that to happen. But if you want to make a, a difference in stopping the epidemic, we're talking about the production of billions of doses of any candidate vaccine. Uh, third, many of the new platforms, as you say, have been developed in the past for things like Ebola or SARS, um, and, um, but they have not been tested with the spike antigen or other antigens of coronavirus. So we really don't know anything about the safety and efficacy in large numbers of people of any of the new vaccines that are moving quickly here. They are moving quickly because they were available and tested uh, to some extent um, against um, the other infectious diseases over the past, H1N1, for example, for some. Uh, the problem is that once those epidemics went away, there was no incentive for the companies to do further testing. So most of the safety tests that we could have learned a great deal about by testing the Ebola vaccine in large numbers of people or the flu vaccine or the SARS vaccines, that research stopped dead, certainly in, uh, pretty close to dead in the federal government. So we really have no real knowledge of the safety and effectiveness of any of these new vaccines. And that is why there has to be a large scale phase two testing. I would remind you that in contrast to drugs that go to sick people, vaccines go into healthy people. So safety is the absolutely highest criteria. And if you're asking the question, how many people do you have to test? Why is it taking so long? If the prevalence in a country is 1%, one person in 100 has to uh, be protected, um, then you have to do 30,000 people to be able to get statistical power to know if it's protected, if the target is only 100 people being protected. So there is no shortcut to getting very large numbers of people vaccinated and tested with each of these, because we really don't know how safe and effective they are. The only other thing I would say is it looks like, uh, in contrast to many other virus infections, people who recover from COVID infections do have antibodies. They do have neutralizing antibodies, uh, but they dissipate very quickly so that at 24 weeks, they're down to about 10% of what they were uh, shortly after infection. And that raises the possibility that the new vaccines not only have to work, they have to work better than natural infection, which is very hard to do. So um, the only way we're gonna know whether these vaccines are any good is, and safe is to go through large scale testing and that will take time. And finally, the question is, when will we have vaccines? The question is, who is we? There may be a phase three trial finished in early January. That doesn't mean a billion doses is, or three billion doses is gonna be available instantly uh, all around the world. And so the actual implementation of vaccines is gonna take one to two years if there is a successful safe vaccine. And that is, people are gonna to have to be prepared for that, which when they read the newspapers and say we'll have a vaccine by January is very misleading. Uh, the thing is that uh, exactly, if uh, um, uh, back in the, in the past, uh, those uh, SARS vaccines uh, went through uh, safety tests and, uh, and the phase two, I mean, meaning uh, aiming to see if uh, they could develop at least antibodies and those safety tests and uh, and the phase two tests were conducted on, on many people, then, uh, I mean, maybe research now would be much faster. We shouldn't go through phase one, phase two uh, at uh, such a, a low pace. That's, 
No, I don't agree because even if they were safe for Ebola with the Ebola antigen and if they were safe for H1N1 or they were safe for SARS and it's the same platform, every time you manipulate a biological agent, you run the risk of introducing errors and mistakes. One has only to look at the testing at CDC that introduced a contaminant, probably something of DNA floating in the air that was unmeasurable that got into the test kits and that slowed us down by three weeks. Um, so no, you can't take safety from a prior vaccine that looked very good, manipulate it genetically in the lab and assume you can skip phase one and two. I don't think that's possible. I think the chances are very low that a mistake or a contaminant could have happened, but they can always happen and you have to test for that. Okay, thank you. All right, it looks like that's our last question. Uh, Dr. Bloom, did you have any final comments? No, but I thank you all for awfully good and challenging questions. <laughs> and Dr. Hanich, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I'd echo that, and I just point out it feels like I have this awful feeling of deja vu, like it's March all over again. This concludes the June 25th press conference.